can open up your Bibles to Matthew 4. We are going to hit that first. It's a new uh, series after going through the Gospel of John. We spend the next 12 weeks looking at, I guess, what I'm calling developing a Christian worldview. It sounds important. It is. The, uh, we'll, we'll look into that. We get two kind of starting parts here. <clears throat> and Aaron, I apologize in advance because I'll forget this. But just in case I need it, there it is. Let's start with uh, this. I guess one thing to kind of hit, too, you know, you think about uh, the type of preaching that you do. I mean, what are we supposed to do biblically? You know, I think the main thing we're supposed to do as, as pastor preachers is to what we call do expository preaching. We expose the word to people. And that's easy to do when you go through a gospel or you go through a book of the Bible there's also kind of a systematic way, and that's what we're doing today is what we call systematic uh, doctrine, systematic theology. But it's still expository. We're going to, what does the Bible say about how we're supposed to view the world? Uh, so it's just maybe a, you're, you're moving around, but it's still uh, couched in the world. So let's kind of, so we're going to go through these first. We're just going to hit these quickly a little bit later in the sermon, but just kind of sets the stage. So verse one of of uh, Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will commend the angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So this kind of sets the tone to, you know, helping us see what, what, what is Jesus' worldview? What does it mean to have a worldview? Well, you have one whether you like it or not. It's the choices we make that's shaped by this framework. It's a word that's been there for a long time. Actually, this was an old word during the Reformation time, and it's kind of re, uh, uh, got revamped here in the last couple decades. So this is a foundation by which you live your life. Every decision we make will go, is going to flow through this filter, and a lot of times we don't even know it. So hopefully, sometimes we do. So how do we determine what's right and wrong? How do we determine what's good and bad? How do we determine what's useful and useless? How do we determine what's appropriate and inappropriate? You do this by having a worldview. I mean, the, the term's not that hard, is it? How you view the world. The overall perspective from which one sees and interprets the world. So your values, your morals, and your beliefs. And again, people have them. There's no such thing, and that's very biblical. You know, Jesus says that you're either for me or against me. So there's no middle ground here. Let me just put it this way. If you're not doing it for God, then you're giving it against God. That's kind of the way he puts it. Uh, so ultimately, and this comes from, and a lot of this, I, I've looked at a lot of the, the data here. It's been a couple of decades ago he wrote this book. George Barna, who is a uh, Christian 
for, for the most part. Um, he, uh, he wrote a book called Thinking Like Jesus, and that's what a Christian worldview is, thinking like Jesus. I like the way that's put. Uh, so some of the stuff we're going to go through, uh, the, the four Fs he has here, you know, is, comes from Barna. So we're using him as kind of a help here. Uh, so ultimately, thinking like Jesus is making our faith practical to every decision we face. And I remember watching a really bad Jesus movie. So I'm always hesitant to say even what it was. So I won't. If you want to know what it was, you can ask. And I may or may not tell you. Um, it was so almost three decades ago. Poorly done as far as it wasn't very biblical. But there was one part of it. And sometimes, you know, as they say, a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes. And here, this happened in this very heretical movie. Jesus is before Pilate. And Pilate is questioning him. And we talked a little bit that at the dedication to, you know, the idea that, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. He's just not kind of understanding. And Pilate turns and looks at him. He says, the problem with you, Jesus, is you're not just trying to change the way people act. You're trying to, to change the way people think. And I thought that was a good line because I think that's true. Uh, because how we view the world, how we think is going to translate into how we act. Um, so one of the analogies, you see this throughout Christendom, is glasses, you know. I see a lot of people here with glasses. I, I'm not old enough to have glasses. <laughs> My kids are looking at, don't you have like 400 pairs of cheaters? Yeah, yeah, those aren't glasses. Those are just cheaters, you know. I mean, I've probably got a good three or four months before I'll need glasses. But, uh, and if, you know, I don't know, you can't see. One of the reasons I use an iPad is because you can make this font as big as you want. There, it's a talk about a big print Bible. It's like, there's only two words on the page here. No, it's not quite that bad. <laughs> but again, but glasses help us see things. And here you see a kind of a picture of that on the screen about glasses making the world in focus. That's what we're talking about. Uh, John Calvin, one of the great of the uh, uh, 16th century, 1500s, uh, used the analogy of the Bible being a pair of spectacles, he would call them. Uh, it's how we're supposed to look at the world. See, it was already there. We're just kind of using that term a little bit different. How do you look at the world? I mean, you can think of another analogy of this. Why is it that you have a, a, one scientist look through the glasses of a Hubble telescope and look at the intricacies of the universe and think that it's all bold, you know, balls of flaming gas that just happen to work out all these things. And another scientist looking exactly the same thing and think, oh my God, in a good way. <laughs> what a wondrous creation you have created. So ordered, so wonderful. Well, one's thinking like Jesus and the other isn't. You know, it's kind of back to the heart issue. So how can we begin to do this? Well, this Matthew 11, we, we hear this a lot and, it, it, and we kind of miss it sometimes. Take my yoke upon you. Y you know, he, he says later that this yoke is easy. It's, it's, it's what you were created to do. It's kind of fitting into that glove that you were always supposed to be fitting into. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So again, this is kind of a worldview thing. Do we look at our religion, our, our Christianity, our discipleship as a burden of a yoke? 
Because that's not really what this verse is talking about. It's not a burden. It's supposed to be guidance, direction. If you're in the yoke, I only, I mean, when I think yoke, I think eggs. I know, it's spelled differently. You know, we don't do a lot of yoke stuff. Um, but back then, it was a big deal. You know, if you wanted want more than one horse or oxen, you needed to have a yoke. But think about that. You're in that, why? To find rest for your soul. So when you don't know what to do, you can go to his word and he will guide you. The spirit will do that too and remind us of, of those things. So this is a good thing. That's how you start thinking like Jesus is getting the yoke together. And why is it easy and light? Because he's the one doing most of the work. <laughs> he's the one that, you notice, he's never going to go off the beaten path, as they say. That's us. But if we follow, if we, even when we mess up, he's going to pull us back. We never get too far from him. It's a great analogy. But that's how we begin. We get in the yoke. We surrender. People don't like that word. Surrender is a bad word. You know? And it is in some cases. It's not a bad word when it comes to God. It's a good word. It's who are you surrendering to? Disciple can be a bad word. Depends on who you're a disciple of. <laughs> That's the big deal. So here's the four F's that Barna has in his book. And the first one is Jesus' foundation. What do you, and that's the text we just read. You see that three times it is written. Again, it is written. Be gone, Satan, for it is written. Is there a pattern here? This is that, it's one word in Greek, gagraptai. And it's always in the imperative meaning, gagraptai, big exclamation point. They don't have punctuation. But this is, he's probably yelling at Satan. It is written. You know, he's making sure Satan knows this. Another thing, I don't know if you ever thought of this, it kind of came to me when I was writing uh, or reading this. Um, Satan obviously doesn't have a full developed view of the nature of Jesus, does he? He must not understand quite who Jesus is. We get this idea that, well, he's Satan, so, you know, he gets all the memos from heaven or something. It's like, I mean, he obviously, why would you tempt God? That's kind of stupid. Or what we were doing in the class, dull. You know, I'm gonna start, we're going to start using that word because apparently it's less offensive, which at this point in my life I've never cared, but maybe I should a little bit. But it is written, you know, this is the thing. And these are all from Deuteronomy. You know, show of hands, how many read Deuteronomy this week? Jesus thought it was fairly important. He didn't say, I say to you as the son of God, tuck your tail in those goofy horns or whatever it has it, he looks like and get out of here. No, it is written and that's it. And notice Satan. He's like, well, yeah, it's written. I guess that's it. Yeah. Okay, you won that one. <laughs> In fact, he even quotes it. You notice that? The devil quotes scripture. So be careful when somebody's quoting scripture to you. I mean, you know, you know, how are you using it? Remember, he says, it says in the Bible, in the Psalms, that if you try to fall, he won't even let you dash your foot against a stone. The angels will take care of you. Take it out of context, isn't he? He's testing God. So that's the key. That's his foundation. It's the word. And this is Jesus. Would you think you have more knowledge of the word than he does or less? Would you think you'd have more need for the word than he does? Yet he's the one that's studying the heck out of it to try to understand it, and we don't do that very well. Wait till we get the statistics of Barna. It's sobering. Dullness at its finest. So Jesus knew and memorized scripture, obviously. He knew these scriptures. 
He didn't say, well, let me look it up. I'm sure there's something in here. And that's fine. I've said that every time. We had that this morning. I asked a question about a particular scripture, and nobody knew the answer. But guess what? It's open book. You can always go in there. And they did, and they found the answer, and we moved on. And I think you get the same grade, but it, wouldn't it be nice to know those so we can refer back to them and think like Jesus? It's not just recite Jesus, it's thinking like Jesus. It's a very high bar, isn't it? So he memorizes it and uses it a lot. When he chooses and, and, and he instructs the disciples, he uses the word. When he's teaching, he obviously uses the word. When he's reprimanding the religious leisures, he uses the word. And, you know, haven't you heard you are wrong. <laughs> Why does he say you are wrong? Because I'm the son? Yeah, sometimes, but most of the time it's like because you do not know the word of God and you're applying it completely wrong. And even when he's confronting Satan, he uses the word. That's his foundation. So a Christian worldview is a biblical worldview. Because again, we're using Jesus' foundation. What was his foundation to look at the world? It was the word. You know, it's just a kind of a logical step. Why would God spend so much blooming time to write all these words down if you really don't need them? Is God that uh, dull? No. I mean, that's just before we even get into the word itself, we already see that. So that's the first one. You've got a foundation, the word. If you don't know that well, you won't think like Jesus. It's pretty easy. His focus, what was his focus? We get this in John 6. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus was in some sense, and this is a negative term in our culture, but he was narrow-minded. In fact, the road to life is narrow. He was in a sense that he, his whole focus was solely on knowing and fulfilling the will of God, the will of the Father. That's what he was here for, and that's what he tried to do. That, and the focus, again, has to be ours. He, and he invests time with his father. We find this, you know, excuse me, Matthew 14 has a couple places. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been killed, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And people can, well, wonder what he did. Well, I think verse 23, 10 verses later, kind of tells us what he probably did because after the crowds came and he did some healing and some teaching, he dismisses the crowds and then he goes up to a mountain himself to pray. And I thought about that. You thought, well, if there's any person who was ever born that didn't, you could make a case that didn't need to pray, you would think it would be Jesus. Because is he praying a prayer of confession? You know, Father, forgive me? No, he, he never sinned, so it's not a prayer of confession, right? Well, what's he praying for then if he's not confessing sins? Maybe he's asking for stuff. That's the other one we do, right? Yeah. Lord, would you get rid of all these dull disciples and give me somebody who has both oars in the water? I think he was just probably talking to his father. And, and maybe having the scrolls open while he did it. I don't know. But if Jesus, again, you see how we're doing If Jesus thinks it's good to withdraw from yourself, from other people and pray, maybe it'd be good for us to do that. And, you know, I've, I've, we, uh, this was on Saturday morning Bible study. I know people, I've heard people say, well, I just pray whatever comes to my mind. I'm like, ah, don't do that. You're not, you're not good enough. Neither am I. <clears throat> I mean, pray for the desires of your heart, but we already talked about what those should be. 
there's a lot of prayers in the Bible. Maybe we should pray those. Not just, you know, just, you know, not, not, not just as a mantra, but what should we pray for? You know, the things that are, I mean, think about the disciples' prayer. What's Jesus telling us we should pray for? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Deliverance from evil, forgiveness of sins, and giving us what we need, not what we want. So, again, if we earnestly desire to know and serve God, our focus must be on Him, and part of that focus is prayer. And notice this, and I, we talk about that, one of the things where the discipleship council is doing, that we're trying to get the one plus one plus one going, where you spend every week as a member or, or part of this church, you spend one hour and 15 minutes worshiping, one hour studying, and one hour serving in the church. But we don't have prayer in there. Why? It's because of this. We pray. I've heard people say, well, I just get so nervous I have to pray in front of somebody. I'm like, I don't care. Don't. Or just open up here. I'll give you. Read Psalm 1. I don't know. <laughs> I don't care if you can pray in public. I do care if you can pray in private. You know, prayer, if it's real, is a, is a, is a connection with God. It doesn't have to look pretty. And I've never prayed a prayer. I'll pray one at the end of this sermon, and it won't anywhere, anywhere as deep it will be tonight when I pray. Why? Because you guys are listening. And there's, everybody has things they probably rather not put in a public prayer, right? We could try that. You want to try that? I think that would make our attendance go up or down. <laughs> I mean, our main job here at Grace Church is make you comfortable. That's a bunch of baloney. We're not here to make you comfortable. In fact, if you leave here comfortable, I did something wrong, I think. You know, I mean, again, you no, know, you'll get comfort, but you get the real comfort. That's the thing we're looking for. So he shows it with prayer. We want that too. Now the filter, and this one makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, all of us filtered our decisions through like a mental, emotional, and spiritual grid. Again, some of this is, is, is known, but you, you probably know people who have a completely different view of a particular issue that you do, and you may respect them, but why is it different? Almost always, if it's a social issue, it's because hopefully you're filtering it through God's word, and they're probably not. And yeah, there's a chance that we're wrong, right? I've heard people say, well, you think you're right, and I'm like, well, why would I follow something I thought was wrong? I mean, that's just, boy, that word keeps coming. Dull. Obviously, I think I'm right, or I wouldn't, I'd just shut up, right? Yes, we think we're right. We, we're humble enough to know that there's times when we're wrong, and you have to be uh, not prideful about it, and you listen. But you don't go preach the gospel if you think maybe it's not true, right? Why would you do that? There's other things to do. Now, again, Jesus' focus was primarily facts about the nature of humanity. No, you're not born basically good. That little burger's cute, I know it, but she's not basically good. Wait till she has to make her own decisions, you know. We have this in, the, in our statement of faith. We are sinners by nature and by choice. I love the way that's put. We are born into, with a fallen nature, and eventually, given time, we will show that fallen nature. That's the thing. What is the nature of God? Because if we're born basically good, we really don't need a Savior, right? Because we can basically do it ourselves. I mean, that's Mormonism, folks. They believe you're born basically good. So the Savior idea kind of, 
not as big a deal. You can save yourself. Good luck. It all depends on what does the Bible say about our nature. And then God's character. That's the thing you have to know. What is God like? You think about it, you came to, and, I, and I, I'd encourage you to say this. I've, I've, I've changed the way I say I think saying words do have differences in how we put it. And I'm not, I'll, we don't, I don't know if we want to say I'm going to church. Because I do that every day. I think we're going to worship. And it just happens to be at the building of the church. Because the church, again, is the people, right? That's in the Bible. It's never a building. I know, and I, and I you don't want to get too carried away with that, but if you ask somebody where they go to church, they might think, well, you see, I was baptized X denomination, and I showed up at that denomination a couple years ago. Oh, I go to that one. But if you say, where are you worshiping right now with other believers? You get, uh-oh. I can't answer this with just a, you know, that's the key. Are you worshiping? Where are you worshiping? And how do you know how to worship God if you don't know the attributes of God? How do you know what worship pleases him? Does he, maybe like the prophets of Baal, you know, in Second Kings, you were supposed to cut ourselves? Would that make him happy? I think some people really think this about Yahweh, about is if you can get really, really miserable, then he's happy. I've even heard people say, seriously, I mean, it just boggles my mind. They'll say, well, you know, you guys out there, you just, it's just too joyous. It's got to be more of a sacrifice. I thought we were supposed to light ourselves in the Lord. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to make a joyful noise to the Lord. We're supposed to worship with joy. Well, how do you do that miserably? You know, it's not a production. It never meant to be. And if somebody thinks it is, I don't really care. That's not what we're trying to do, right? Did you know that you can actually follow God and like it? In this world, it's amazing. It's almost like we think, well, if you're more miserable, then you're a really good Christian. Do we really want to be the grumpy church? I mean, there's times, but let's, let's be joyful. That doesn't mean you have to roll around the aisles. If you do that, I'll probably have you removed. You see this in the Sermon on the Mount. He's always reflecting God's character. He's trying to show how do you see God's character? Well, what rules does he have? How does he see things? You have heard that it was said of old. You know, it is written, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, parenthetically, you're missing the point. I mean, you know, this isn't rhetorical. Show of hands, and maybe we have a few. How many people have murdered somebody? I didn't figure if you did, you'd lace that hand. Now, if you ask that in prison, you get more hands. <laughs> but you're not supposed to do that because number one rule of prison ministry is don't ask them what they did. It's really none of your business. If they want to tell you, that's up to them. Um, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with a brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, ouch. This is a little different. This is rhetorical. How many of you got angry this week? <laughs> yeah, it can happen. You know, one of the things you probably don't know that, anybody here from a city bigger than 100,000? 
I mean, right now, that, live, that you live in now. Well, you guys would know this, right? It's a lot easier to get angry in cities because of the traffic. I've been there. Um, I've had people ask, well, why don't you go to a bigger church and all that kind of, well, first of all, they probably wouldn't have me. But second of all, I really like my nine-minute commute. It's just a leisure. I don't know why anybody speeds in Denison. I'm like, what are you... If I speed, I can get here in eight minutes. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty dull, folks. I don't get it. You can do the speed limit all the way here, and you can, you'll get here about the same time if you didn't get here. But, but think about that. You know, you get angry. You tried it. What, what, I had a, you know, she, I had, there was a, a wife of one of the seminary friends of mine. He's down in Thibodeau, Louisiana, um, Bill Crawford. And Lucky Mop, he's online with his services now. Um, his wife, Julia, said, well, every time I hit a light, I pray. I'm like, well, that's just annoying. That's my first thought. And then I started doing that. It changed your view. I was just, I wouldn't say I was completely unannoyed. I was just less annoyed. You know, that's what I would go with. But that's the thing, you know, what is it? It's a hard issue. These commandments are not supposed to be something that you just do because they're there. They're not just the filter in themselves, the law. There's an underlying commitment to acknowledge, love, and follow God. That's the idea. Jesus says to the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. So being angry, he's not saying they're the same. I don't think that. I don't think lust is the same as adultery. I don't think anger is the same as murder. We've had, I don't know if you know that, but we've had jury selection here every, every Tuesday because we happen to be a place where they could space out well. I'm like, sounds good to me. Um, come on here. You might get, maybe someone will rub off, you know, you never know. But you think about that. Has anybody ever been convicted of anger? Were you angry when you were getting that McDonald's order and it took like two minutes instead of 30 seconds that it should? And how long does it take to cook fries? How come I always have to wait in a little one-two slot? That's not fair. But you don't get convicted of that, right? You don't get convicted of lust. You don't have to play alimony because of lust. But what that is is fencing in the law. You stop at the temptation and the action won't happen. That's what the old rabbis always did. Fence in the law. You fence it in. If you don't get angry, murder is not going to be on the table. If you don't lust, adultery won't be on the table. That's what he's talking about here. It's about loving God. And this is the key. And this is the key to the worldview throughout all 12 of these. Does this decision or action honor God or not? And you might just have to do a little work to figure that out. Or ask some wise person and do it together. That's it. When somebody asks me, why don't you think these different relationships, sexual relationships are good? They don't honor God. And then you know what? They can take it up with him after that. And if they can believe what they want, God allows that. But it's not, if it's not honoring him, it's not good. And again, are we thinking like Jesus? And the last one is Jesus' faith. Uh, we don't think about this, but he demonstrates that he has a genuine biblical worldview by his actions. Jesus answers, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him 
and make our home with him. And then he starts that abiding thing from chapter 15. But think about this. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So you could say this, I think, by implication, if anybody loves me, he'll try to know my word because you can't keep what you don't know. I think that's, he was realistic. Jesus understood that knowing this, I don't know if it happens to you. Does everybody like it when you talk about Jesus? This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God. It was true, right? He was the son of God. They just didn't like hearing it. And a lot of people aren't going to like, you know, and you, can, you don't have to be completely annoying. Um, maybe we should do a series on that. That'll be annoying in seven easy steps. <laughs> I found I can do it in two, but so faith, what is a faith? What is our faith? You know, we, we've had this before. This is our working definition, active reason to trust in Christ based on evidence and shown by our obedient motivations and actions. That kind of fits the whole thing about what God wants from us. And because of that, Jesus had limited anxiety about consequence. He knew he was going to die. He told him he was going to go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be handed over to the chief priest, and they're going to condemn him to death. I'm not saying he had no anxiety, but he had limited anxiety. He kind of followed his own rules. I love the end of chapter 6 of, the, of uh, uh, Matthew at the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the way it's translated, today's troubles are enough for today. Do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will take care of itself. Who knows? I guess I can say this. Of all the beings in here right now, how many of the beings know what's going to happen tomorrow for sure? I'm just assuming the Holy Spirit's here. So one, <laughs> that's it. And usually he doesn't tell you. We wouldn't know what to do if he did, right? Because we're not God. So the key, it all comes down, you know, First Thessalonians 2, I like this. We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Who are you trying to please? Who are you going to try to please this week? Please don't please me because that won't work. Because you'll be watching way more football and baseball than you probably want to. Please God. That's what you're trying to do. And that is a good way to look at it. So again, a Christian worldview is thinking like Jesus. And it is a biblical worldview because that's the way Jesus saw it. And that's the way we should do. And I think Barna's four Fs are good. How do we do this? How do we form one? We're going to look at this in the next 11 weeks. We want to have the same foundation as Jesus, which was the Bible. We want to have the same focus that Jesus had. God's will revealed in the Bible. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Read the Bible. We want to have the same filter that we're knowing and loving God, trying to honor him with our actions, and the same faith, truly honoring and trusting in him that he might just know more about you than you do. And he's only going to give you the desires of your heart when you follow his will. Let us pray. Father, as we continue and start this uh, biblical worldview, uh, we thank you for people like George Barna who helps us with statistics and focus and finds ways for us to understand this better. For us today, I just pray for each one of us, including myself, that maybe this week we can think like your son, wanting to know your word, wanting to understand uh, right from wrong, good from evil, 
useful things and unuseful things and understanding that our faith has to be grounded in your son and may we want to be obedient to him to show our love for him always amen